calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Lightspeed. Hello there, and welcome to the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Kincaid. The magazine is edited by John Joseph Adams. The stories on the podcast are produced by Skyboat Media. Helmed by the Audi and Grammy Award-winning narrator Stefan Rudnicki and Gabrielle DeCure. Post-production for Lightspeed is in association with Jim Freund. You can check out Skyboat Media's website at skyboatmedia.com. And let's get on with the story, shall we? Our next offering for the May issue is The Missing Metatarsals by Sean Williams. The story is read for you by Paul Bamer. Sean Williams is a number one New York Times best-selling author with 40 novels and 80 short stories under his belt, not to mention the odd, odd poem. He writes science fiction, fantasy, and horror for adults, young adults, and children, and enjoys the occasional franchise, too, such as Star Wars and Doctor Who. Born in the dry flatlands of South Australia, where he still lives with his wife and family, he is currently working on the Trouble Twister series with Garth Nix, and he's working on a PhD exploring the trope of the matter transmitter. He is also the overseas regional director at SFWA. This story is set in the world of Twin Maker, his first original sci-fi novel in four years. Twin Maker will be available from HarperCollins in November of 2013. And that does it for this week's intro, so without further ado, let's make the jump to light speed. The Missing Metatarsals, written by Sean Williams, narrated by Paul Bamer. The moment I stepped from the booth and saw Inspector Forrest waiting for me, I knew something was up. You're wearing your inscrutable face, I told him. This is my usual face. His head swivelled to track me as we walked in lockstep through security. A birth defect called Merbius syndrome inherited from distant Nepalese ancestors left him with underdeveloped six and seven cranial nerves, so he can't blink, bite or form expressions without the help of a series of tiny implants. My girlfriend Billy is a muscle artist, and she's tweaked the inspector's presets a couple of times, 
giving him conscious control of his face. But that's not the same as the real thing. Not the same at all. I would like your perspective on a rather interesting situation, if you have time. Sure. I was a peacekeeper not for the status, but for a chance to crack cases with the legendary P.K. Forrest. What's up? A theft. I didn't think data crime was your bag. This has nothing to do with data. Someone actually stole something? So it seems. One eyelid drooped, very precisely. Let me get my coat, and we will be on our way. It was like the inspector to wear a coat when there was no need to go outside. Peacekeeper HQ was in the New York archipelago that week, and the crime had occurred in Washington, D.C. So we took an internal booth and stepped into a mahogany foyer that left me feeling as though I'd moved in time, as well as space. My augmented reality lenses synced with the air on arrival, giving me a brief rundown of our new location. It was the home of a private collection belonging to a Mr. Antoine Biazanti. But what the collection consisted of, exactly, the air didn't say. Antiques, I guessed, judging by the foyer. I was close. P.K. Forrest. A smartly dressed Caucasian woman stepped out of a doorway to greet us, her hand outstretched to take the inspectors in a firm grip. This is my assistant, P.K. Sergeant. I took the woman's hand in turn, knotting the green eyes that danced away too quickly. Several strands of hair that had sprung free of a tight auburn bun, and a not unpleasant smell of dust. The fingernail of her thumb was bitten short, her palm faintly damp. Diana Scullin, curator of Mr. Biazanti's collection, she told me. Please, this way. She led us through a series of dimly lit corridors, heels inaudible on thick, burgundy carpet. I examined a series of framed pictures as they swept past, expecting the usual portraits or landscapes, but they were in fact old paintings of dinosaurs. Their proportions were off, and everyone knows that T-Rex ran with its body parallel to the ground rather than upright like a kangaroo. Mr. Byzanti is an eminent dinophiliac, the inspector said, noting my interest. Is that a word? Most would say preeminent, said Scullin, waving us ahead of her through a double door. The office beyond left no doubt of the owner's opinion regarding the prefix. Mr. Byzanti had a crown of curly grey hair that contrasted magisterially with his black skin. The tallest person in the room by almost a full head, followed by me, Scullin, and Inspector Forrest. He loomed in a blue three-piece suit over an enormous leather-topped desk. Good of you to come, he said, in a voice that was high-pitched with anxiety. He didn't offer us a seat, but he didn't sit himself, so I supposed that wasn't impolite. I'm desperate. So I was led to understand, said the inspector. Something about a stolen fossil? Not just any fossil, man. The find of the century. Perhaps you could explain the significance of the theft in more detail. Yes, of course. 
Byzanti walked as he talked, circumnavigating around the room as though looking for a way out. There are three official species of Stegosaurus. Armatus, Homeni, and Miosi. Two years ago I discovered a perfectly articulated skeleton of a fourth species, Stegosaurus ungulatus, in the Lorinha formation in Portugal. The specimen has been in my collection ever since, or so I believed until yesterday, when I discovered that part of it was missing. How? I asked. I wished to view the metatarsals of the rear feet, one of the features that distinguish this species from its predecessors. When I opened the case, I found it to be empty. A preliminary search in neighboring boxes turned up no sign of them, so I called Diana, uh, Dr. Scullin, here. We conducted an emergency audit and discovered only more absences from the catalogue, all of the same skeleton. Fully fifteen percent of my Stegosaurus ungulatus is missing. It must be recovered at once. Surely you can recover its pattern from the air, and never! He rounded on me with a feverish gleam in his eye. My specimens are completely authentic, right down to the last molecule. Mr. Biazanti is an abstainer. Diana Scullin elaborated. All of his archaeological samples are freighted by rail to avoid using any form of matter transmission. I have no use for shabby counterfeits, he blustered. But you have a DMAT booth in your foyer, knighted the inspector. People can do what they like as long as they leave me and my collection alone. So none of the missing exhibits were scanned? I asked still not quite able to believe it, not even for insurance against damage or, well, loss. Mr. Biazanti raised his chin, and both thumbs went into his waistcoat. I took that as a no, since scanning inevitably requires the deconstruction of the object being scanned. Tell me about your fellow dinophiliacs. Now it was the inspector's turn to pace, while Biazanti stood still. It was like watching Ganymede orbit Jupiter. Could one of them be responsible for the theft? Perhaps one jealous of your extensive collection? Biazanti nodded. The thought had occurred to me, P.K. Forrest. But I accompany them at all times. They couldn't take so much as a fingernail scraping without me noticing... I believed him. What about other visitors, family, friends? We've compiled the names of everyone who came through the collection in the relevant period, said Scullin. There was some repair work performed by artisans on one of the display wings, a carpenter and an electrician. They might be worth looking into. P.K. Sargent and I will study that information in a moment. The inspector was still pacing which meant he was still thinking. You have a booth, Mr. Byzanti, that you do not ever use. That means there is at least one other exit from the building. There are three. Diana Scullin answered for her boss again. All are watched around the clock, as are the display wings. I have the security files for you and somewhere private for you to work. One last question, then, said the inspector.
Stegosaurus was a large beast, yes. It would be difficult to smuggle it from the collection without breaking it into pieces. Yes. A pained expression crossed Byzantius's face. Let's pray they didn't do that. Indeed. It would be a terrible loss to humanity were this precious fossil to disappear forever. I completely agree, P.K. Forrest, said Diana Scullin. Now, if you'll come this way. We were escorted from the room to leave the collector agonising over his losses. Diana Scullin took us to an office nearby, offered us coffee or tea, which we both declined, and then left us to our ruminations. The inspector took off his coat, draped it over the back of a chair, and rotated to take in the room. It was considerably less grand than Mr. Byzantes. I hoped for one of the display wings, he said. I loved dinosaurs as a child. Is that why we're here? It's not for the case, surely. We could have interviewed Byzanti and studied the files from HQ. Yes, the theft part is a novelty, but I'll bet we could catch a dinophiliac red-handed on the security feed. The inspector tapped the side of his nose. The case is more than the case. He often said stuff like that. What else do you see here? What is evident, apart from the evidence? That these people are completely out of touch, I said. Dinosaur bones and abstainers, really? The inspector smiled winningly, and it caught me off guard for an instant. One of Billy's finest. The data we had been promised was location fixed, so would leave the infields of our lenses the moment we left the building. We set to it with a will, dividing the caches and pursuing our own particular paths. I quickly determined that no one had left the building carrying a heavy rucksack with a giant femur sticking out of it. There went the easy break I'd hoped for. The next thing to ascertain was when the Stegosaurus ungulatus cases had last been accessed. Diana Scullin had conducted a routine census three months ago, opening the boxes and noting the precise catalogue of their contents. All present and correct so the crime must have taken place subsequently. That left a lot of coming and going and a lot of idle staring at footage for me. Apart from Byzanti, Scullin and the occasional dinophiliac, the only people to come near the cases were the artisans Scullin had mentioned. I closely examined those particular moments, noting every opportunity they'd had to interfere with the precious bones. It was tedious work, and I wasn't used to tracking physical objects like old-time police. Theft today means patents, not property. Since everything that goes through DMAT can in theory be infinitely reproduced, of course, that won't fly where people are concerned, so laws exist to limit copying, and also to protect ownership of proprietary designs. These laws are very complicated. Does a copy of the Mona Lisa have the same cultural value as the original? Is a copy of a fertilised human egg considered an entirely new human being? How does an inventor 
earn status from a prototype that can be copied in seconds by a million people at once. And what does it mean to be the original Mona Lisa anyway? To most people, the answer is nothing at all. Not when its copies are perfect, right down to the tiniest particle. But clearly it matters to abstainers like Mr. Byzanti, who never use DMAT for fear of becoming something other if they are broken down and rebuilt elsewhere. I'll admit that used to worry me too when I was old enough to worry, but the process is so demonstrably safe that being frightened of it now just seems absurd. I'd be more worried about driving a car with a tank of explosive petroleum behind my seat, like people used to. I'm getting nowhere, I said, after an hour of scouring. Plenty of opportunities to get at the cases, but no opportunities to get out. You? The inspector nodded. I think it is time to summon Dr. Scullin. I found her in a workshop, up the hall, that was full of hands-on preserving paraphernalia. She'd slipped a lab coat over her smart suit, and I liked her more on seeing it. Evidence of a practical nature, not just an egghead like her boss. Sadly, she took it off to be grilled by the inspector. We have ruled out Mr. Byzantius' rivals as suspects for the crime itself. He told her, which was news to me. By no possible means could those bones have been physically removed from this institution in their original state, and without them being in their original state, collectors such as Mr. Byzanti would not be interested in possessing them. Once demetted, the bones would be considered facsimiles and therefore valueless. Ah, I had got part way to that conclusion at least. Scullin did not seem surprised. So they left through the booth. Can you access the transit records? I already have, said the inspector. The bones were not transmitted individually or en masse, alone, or on anyone's person. That can't be possible. Oh, but it is. Dr. Scullin, do you have a fabricator here? A faber? Yes, there's one in the rec room. And this rec room is not monitored, I presume? No, there's nothing in there worth stealing. Not any more. I am certain the fabricator was used in the perpetration of this crime. Mr. Byzanti will not eat patent food or drink, so the device is provided mainly for the comfort of visitors. The artisans, affecting the repairs on the display cases, for instance, no one would suspect them for being there, using a machine that was provided for their own convenience. But why would they put the bones into the Faber? I asked. Not to be recycled, asked Scullin, with an aghast expression. Don't tell me that's where you're going with this. It is not inconceivable, said the inspector, that what one collector does not possess he might go to extreme lengths to deny to another. But in this case I do not think so. Fabers are demat booths in miniature. They can assemble and disassemble, and they can scan. That doesn't change anything, I said, wondering where he was going with this. Even if the artisans did scan the bones, 
what would they do with the patterns? It'd be a huge cache. Any attempt to upload it into the air could be traced. Same if they fed it into the booth. You saw the data. The bones didn't leave that way. Another smile. It sent a shiver down my spine. Sometimes I wondered if it wasn't Billy I saw in him, but the other way around. It would be helpful to speak to Mr. Byzanti now, he said. I am a man of few words, and I dislike explaining myself twice. Now, that simply wasn't true. The inspector loves nothing better than revealing how clever he is. That he wasn't talking now meant he had something big to reveal, and I too would have to wait. Mr. Byzanti burst through the door in a gargantuan rush. Tell me you found Stegosaurus Ungulatus. Tell me the criminals who did this to me will soon be brought to justice. That I can promise you, the inspector said. Their fate will be hideous and poetic, unless they return your specimens to you immediately. You are certain of this? How? Because you, Mr. Byzanti, are the victim of something very close to a pun. Stegosaurus means covered lizard, as I am sure you already know. It comes from the Greek stegos, roof, referring to the distinctive plates protruding from its spine. Now, there is another word derived from the same root that means hidden writing. Steganography, I eagerly contributed. People have been hiding data invisibly in other files for more than a century. Pilfered blueprints in word processor documents, government secrets in accounting spreadsheets, child pornography and family photographs. It was an art almost as old as the dinosaurs themselves. The artisans feed the data from the Faber into the booth in the foyer, then they merged it with themselves when they left, so they could get the bones out of the building without anyone noticing. That's right, isn't it? An elegantly simple plan, said the inspector. But what happened next? Our criminals will not find a taker for this data among the dinophiliacs, yet they are intelligent enough to appreciate the value of Stegosaurus ungulatus. Otherwise, they would never have stolen it. I cannot imagine them erasing the patterns. Not even in the utter desperation they must presently be feeling. Desperation? How so? asked Byzanti. Consider their situation. They must keep the data secret, which means continuing to hide it, steganographically. They have been walking around with the bones of a long-extinct creature inside their body. Imagine what that data must be doing to them. You think it's affecting them? Asked Diana Scullin with surprise and possibly alarm. We'll find out if it is, I said, picturing a half-man half-stegosaurus rampaging through suburbia. A steganosaurus, even. We'll bullet in all the hospitals and emergency centres and check DMAT transit data for odd DNA signatures, too. Whatever symptoms they've got, they'll stick out like a... like brontosaurus in a briar patch, said the inspector. Monstrous, said Mr. Byzanti, but behind his eyes I glimpsed something that might have been jealousy. Of course, said the inspector. If we could draw them out before then, 
By offering a reward, perhaps? asked Scullin. For stealing my property? said Mr. Boyzanti. Nonsense. The skeleton will forever be only eighty-five percent original, whether they can return the patterns or not. But who could tell the difference? I asked. I could. I agree with Dr. Scullin, said the inspector in ameliorating tones, but would suggest immunity from prosecution rather than a material reward. It will encourage the thieves to come forward more quickly, so Stegosaurus ungulatus will be as complete as it can be, as soon as can be. And you, Mr. Biazanti, will have the honour of owning it once more, along with the knowledge that no one else does. Well, I suppose. He seemed unsure whether to feel victorious or beaten, and we were happy to leave him like that. Me? I didn't care one way or the other, as long as the mystery was solved. Diana Scullin walked us back to the foyer. There she thanked us both with genuine feeling, and with genuine reason, I thought. We had been there barely an hour, not quite a record for the inspector, but still pretty impressive. Who knew what feats she might have endured from her employer, had we not solved the case so quickly? I expect the matter will be resolved forthwith, said the inspector. Yes, she said. Yes, I expect you're right. The booth opened for us, and we stepped inside. Arrival back at HQ came with a sinking feeling in my chest. DMAT always did that to me. Plus, the case was almost over. I would have nothing but mundane duties until next the inspector called. So, will you notify the hospitals or I? No need, PK Sergeant. Don't tell me you're not interested in seeing a human-dinosaur hybrid. I would indeed be, if there were such a thing. But you said... I know what I said. You were not listening properly. Ah! He stopped and clipped his hands together. My coat. I appear to have left it behind. Would you mind fetching it for me, PK Sergeant, while I start compiling the report? Just this once, Inspector, I said, half annoyed and half amused at the same time. My thanks. But you know, you really must not call me that. I headed back to the booth and requested a return journey. Our entrance permissions were still valid, but this time there was no one waiting for me when I arrived. Maybe, I thought, I could be in and out before anyone noticed I was there. The coat was in the office we had briefly occupied, just along the hall from Diana Scullin's workshop. As I picked up the coat... I heard a soft sound that caught me in mid-step. It was a soft cry or a sob, a sound of distress that the peacekeeper in me could not ignore. I found Scullin with her lab coat bunched up and pressed to her face. Her shoulders were shaking. Are you all right? She gasped and jumped backwards. What are you doing here? I came for this. I raised the inspector's coat but had eyes only for her. What's going on? Is there something you need to tell me? She maintained her poise for barely a second. Then she crumpled like a statue that had been hollowed out from within, 
starting with the muscles of her face and cascading down the length of her body. Billy would have loved it. It was like watching someone dissolve. I don't need to tell you, she said, sagging into a chair. You know it was me who took those damned bones, and you've been toying with me all this time. P.K. Forrest's little hints and jabs. I told myself I was imagining it because he said it all with such a straight face, but here you are now, and... What is it you want, a confession? Well, you've got it, so take me in and be done with it. I won't resist. It was all I could do not to gape while I processed this revelation. What did she mean by the inspector's hints and jabs? I hadn't noticed anything steganographic going on. I was used to his straight face. But he himself had just chastened me for not listening properly. What had I missed? Well, for starters, Scullin had pointed us at the artisans, and she had been alarmed when the inspector honed in on the fibber. Then she had gone for a reward and displayed relief at the end, when it looked like she had eluded all blame. All this didn't necessarily make her a bad person. I remembered her bitten nails and damp palm. Her nerves must have been shot to pieces. And she hadn't lied when the inspector had raised the terrible loss to humanity the theft represented. Given a kick in the right direction, I could see now where the genesis of her crime lay. How much? I asked. Of the skeleton, have you leaked to the scientific community? She looked up at me, and all I saw in her eyes was stubborn pride. She was a curator, not a thief. She didn't care about anything as stupid as molecular authenticity. Those bits were the last, she said. It doesn't belong here, P.K. Sergeant, locked up in a box where no one else can see it. So you skinned the whole thing in the fibber, and then you put copies of the bones back where they came from? Yes, in my lunch hours, over several weeks. And it was just beard luck he chose that day to look at the metatarsals? She nodded. Until then, Mr. Byzanti never suspected a thing. I found the thought hilarious, except it wouldn't have done just then to laugh. Kind of that way, I think, Dr. Scullin. She hesitated, then nodded again. I'll show myself out. When I returned the coat to the inspector, he was wearing that innocent look I knew far too well. So, he said brightly, the hospitals? No need, I echoed him. The bones will come back as you promised. And even if Mr. Byzanti finds out what really happened, Scullin has his promise of immunity to fall back on. You sewed him up good and tight. He inclined his head. Thank you for tying the bow. What did I do, apart from the usual, I mean? People tended to notice me, the big girl in uniform, and that gives the inspector a smokescreen for whatever he's up to. Solving the case without leaving HQ was as easy as you said, he said. But I believe the perpetrator was more likely to talk to you rather than an old dinosaur like me. Oh, that makes sense. 
it was good that Diana Scullin didn't think she'd gotten off scot-free. As long as you're not keeping me around to be your audience. Never, my dear friend, never. But his eyes twinkled in a way that not even Billy could program, and I knew that his version of the truth was, as always, somewhat less or more than he was willing to admit to. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the tale. If so, and if you find the time, please go to our website at lightspeedmagazine.com and leave a comment. Just click on Fiction, find this story, and then leave a comment there. Or if you'd like to help spread the word, go to iTunes, find the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast, and leave a review or rating there. And if you haven't already subscribed to Lightspeed Magazine, please take a moment to consider it and check out our many options at lightspeedmagazine.com slash subscribe. The stories are produced by Skyboat Road Company, Inc., which is spearheaded by the Audi and Grammy award-winning narrator Stefan Rutnicki and in association with Jim Freund. We also hope you'll check out Lightspeed Year One, a collection of audio stories from this podcast's first Hugo-nominated year. Look for it at audible.com. And that's all for now. Thanks for listening. Cheers from all of us at Lightspeed Magazine. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.